Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. Well, um, it's a privilege to be invited to speak to you guys um, in a moment like this. Um, Our tendency, uh, the international Marxist tendency, is growing everywhere and it's growing very fast in some countries. Um, While we're meeting here in Britain uh, as the Marxist Student Federation, our Canadian comrades are holding the Montreal School and they have over a thousand people registered to attend that event. This comes on top of last year's amazing international Marxist uh, university we're over 6,000 registered. Now, these are huge steps forward for the tendency. And the question is, why is it happening now? Why is this all coming together in one country after another? Well, it's obviously connected to the objective situation, what is happening around the world. If you look around the world, you see event after event after event that confirms how deep the crisis is, but it also confirms how angry people are around the world, the real suffering that's taking place. It's my task here to talk about world perspectives in 40 minutes. Um, That gives me about 10 seconds for every revolution that's taking place around the world or every revolutionary process, let's say. Um, One country after another is in turmoil. Now, what um, what we're seeing globally is we have parties that come into government um, and not long after, within a few years at most, those parties are discredited. They're losing support. We're seeing parties that shoot up, become very popular, and then suddenly um, lose their popularity. We have the example, for instance, in Brazil of Bolsonaro, who who became a very popular figure, this populist. But um, um, he tried to launch his own party recently. To do that, you need a minimum number of signatures, like something like half a million people have to sign up to uh, sponsor you. In spite of the backing of the churches and uh, other reactionary forces, Um, he failed to get the support because his popularity has collapsed. Um, Or let's look at Modi in India. I spoke at the Greenwich Marxist uh, University meeting the other day on the massive strike wave that's taking place in India. Modi was elected in 2014 and then re-elected in 2019. And yet, I think you've all seen the scenes on TV of the Indian farmers. You're talking about a queue of 100 kilometers of tractors waiting to drive 
into Delhi. Um, huge numbers and violent scenes with the state clamping down on, um, on the farmers. This comes after a massive general strike last year, which saw something like 250 million people taking part. Um, the shine on Modi has gone. I could talk just about India to highlight the contradictions of capitalism. But I just want to remind you what the difference, the difference between being a Marxist and just being an average left activist without, let's say, the compass of Marxism. I've had discussions over the recent years with people in India on the left. And when Modi came to power, um, they were all talking about fascism. Fascism, fascism, fascism. The same they did in Brazil with Bolsonaro. The same they did with Trump in America. Um, this is repeated in country after country. All they can see is reaction. I remember telling some of these people, you wait and see in India what is going to happen. You are going to see some big events. And this is when Modi was his most popular. You know, they, 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 were, they were whipping up uh, Muslim-Hindu conflicts. They were whipping up racism and bigotry, um, people being killed. Um, and I explained to some of these people, look, the contradictions of capitalism are going to push the workers of India into action. You're going to see a wave of radicalization. And that is what's happening before our very eyes. Just to go somewhere else, um, Russia, where for years P Putin was a popular figure and he whipped up nationalism. He used the events in the Ukraine, he used the events in Crimea, he used the events in Syria to, uh, to whip up this sense, sense of, of Russian nationalism. The shine of Putin has gone. Um, he's, he's, he's plummeting in the popularity ratings and there have been big protests all across Russia. Uh, he's desperately trying to hold on. Just over a week ago, he arrested 5,000 people on one day um, in, the in the demonstrations. Um, this is happening in, um, in Russia. If we go elsewhere, um, if we go around the world, we're seeing wars and civil wars erupting in different parts of the world. Most recently, we had the, um, the conflicts inside Ethiopia. I remind you that just like India, which was regarded as a shining model of economic development, capitalist boom, etc., Ethiopia was a country they were looking to invest in because they thought it's somewhere where you can make uh, good money. And it was another model of, of development. And now we have the internal conflict in the Tigray, the national question erupting. And the national question is, is, is a problem everywhere where the ruling class tries to use ethnic divisions to put worker against worker in India. It's used, you know, uh, attacking Muslims. In, in uh, Myanmar, the Rohingya people have been uh, brutally attacked, thousands killed. Ethiopia, you have the war in the Tigray. Um, and it's, it's uh, wars and civil wars um, around the world. I've got, I could just list here the people who've been killed in various conflicts, Afghanistan, more than 2 million, Yemen, about 100,000, Syria, 600,000. In Mexico, in the drug wars, over, four, over um, uh, uh, 40,000 killed, 150,000 killed in organized crime, 45,000 Kurds killed, 500,000 killed in Somalia, 6 million in the Congo, um, and then the Maghreb, Iraq, over a million. In Nigeria, 
Nobody hardly, any, hardly mentioned 50,000 killed in the north east, in the south Sudan, nearly half a million. And, and the list is endless. It endless. This, is, this is the world we live in. And this is, this is the barbarism of capitalism in crisis. This is what imperialism does to the former colonial countries. But uh, other examples in South Africa, um, unemployment shooting up. In the Lebanon, a collapse of the economy, 35% unemployment and growing, half the population living in poverty, massive debt. Iran, a wave of strikes last year. I'm rushing through because of time. In Nigeria, let's not forget the youth movement in October, that amazing outburst of youthful um, anger. Um, this, this is all happening, and I've just, I've just touched on the surface. I haven't mentioned Ecuador, I haven't mentioned Chile. I am now, of course, but I can't go into the details uh, of, of all these events because of the, um, the time, you know, Alger Algeria, the recent events in Tunisia. Um, now, why, uh, I haven't, haven't even had time to develop on the movement of the Black Lives Matter, where they destroyed a police station and opinion polls in America showed the majority of Americans thought that was justified. Now, how can all this be happening at the same time in all countries. Now, you know when they tell us, oh, you really you really think, you Marxists really think that it's possible to have a revolution on a world level? You mean all countries at the same time? Well, we never said it would happen all at nine o'clock on a Monday morning, uh, the same week. But in the same period, we are seeing country after country being massively affected by the economic crisis. And that is promote, provoking movement after movement after movement. The other day we celebrated the Egyptian revolution. Let's not forget how international the events become. You know, we had the events in Tunisia, then it affected Egypt, and then it spread across the whole of the Arab world. But something that that experience highlighted was the lack of leadership and what it means. Look, at the lack of leadership in, in Egypt has meant this amazing revolutionary movement has been transformed um, into a brutal dictatorship once more. Um, and that shows what happens when you have a movement uh, uh, towards revolution, when you have the masses moving with big hopes of change, where there's no leadership and there's no party that can pull all those forces together. Going back to India, for example, you have general strike after general strike after general strike. There have been 19 general strikes in India, um, 24 hours, 48 hours. Um, and what do the union leaders do? They march them up to the top of the hill and they march them down again. Um, that's the, that, that's what the trade union leaders are like. They're using, they're even using the general strike as a means not of pushing the movement forward and bringing forces together, but it's actually letting off steam, and everybody goes back to work. And the capitalists, Modi, they they know that's going to happen. They're going to have a twenty-four hour general strike, and he's back to work the next day. And then what? And then he continues with his anti-labor laws. He continues with his racist bigotry. He continues with his program of privatization and attacks on the workers. And he goes on and on. And in December of last year, you have a general strike. 
250 million take part. Parallel to that, you have the farmers. They tell us that the workers, well, you know, especially in the less developed countries like India, you can't have socialism. You can't have a struggle for socialism because it's a backward economy. They're the peasants, they're the farmers, they're conservative. Conservative, the Indian farmers. You look at the methods that they're using. Now would be the moment in India for the unions to call an all-out general strike. Paralyze everything. Occupy all the workplaces. Occupy the universities, the schools. Mobilize the youth and support the farmers. Come together. Who can deny that that's possible today? They can't say, oh, you're dreaming. You're inventing this. It's because you're a Marxist and you have prejudice and you only see class struggle. It's happening before our very eyes, comrades. And what's missing in India? It's, it's the leadership. The Communist parties of India for decades have backed Congress and they've backed this idea that um, development in India must be capitalist. And they're tainted with that. And that explains their actual, their collapse precisely in the moment when you require concrete leadership, their vote has, uh, has collapsed. I'm highlighting India, but you could talk about the United States where you see these dramatic events. Who would have imagined just a few years ago that we would be watching those events on the capital, um, the, 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 the taking of the capital by this mob incited by uh, Trump? Um, a president of the United States using these methods. And this, and, and, you, and at the same time, the massive Black Lives Matter movement that took place last year. What we see there, we see it in India, we see it everywhere, we see it in Britain, is we have both revolutionary and counter-revolutionary tendencies developing within society at the same time. It's a revolution and counter-revolution. They march together, actually. What it represents is the deep crisis of the system. On the one side, you have the ruling class using every method possible to divide the workers. Racism, you put black workers against white workers. Or in India, you put Muslims against Hindus. Um, in uh, Myanmar, you... you um, uh, kill thousands of Muslims, you burn the villages and you try and foment Barmer nationalism against the ethnic minorities. It's a method they use everywhere. In Britain, we have it just across the sea there. Look at the situation that's developing in Northern Ireland over the question of the border, the threats to the border, uh, the workers on, on, on the border controls from uh, um, some of the extreme unionists. Um, they thought they'd solve the problem. They haven't solved anything. It's, it can all come back to haunt them on the basis of the crisis um, of, um, of the system. So we have both. What does this represent? It represents the two fundamental classes in society lining up for battle. That's what we're seeing in front of us. The huge mobilizations that we see of workers, the strikes in, that we've seen in, in recent years in Brazil, um, the movement that we see in India of the workers and the farmers. Um, the reaction now in Myanmar, look at that. Norm normally, a coup d'etat puts an end to a movement. In 1988, a coup put an end to the massive movement of students and workers and, uh, 
in, in, um, in, in Myanmar. This time they carry out the coup and it has exactly the opposite effect of what they wanted. Instead of carrying the masses, we have this huge explosion of mobilizations, this huge explosion of anger. And they're extremely worried of where this um, could go. On top of this, which this is a consequence of the crisis, I'll try and give some figures if I have time. Um, but we have the pandemic, which is exacerbating the situation. It's bringing out all the class contradictions of society. And then we have another problem, climate change, which is having an impact. It's having an impact on our lives, and it's having an impact on the consciousness of people, and particularly of the youth. Now, these two problems I just mentioned, the pandemic and climate change, there's no solution to either of these problems within the national borders of any one country. I mean, it, it just, it, it, you don't need to have uh, too, 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 too much of an education to understand that the climate doesn't recognize borders. You know, it doesn't stop at the channel and change. Um, it's a global phenomenon. It's one system. And it requires a global solution. Um, it cannot be solved within the borders of one country. And the um, and the pandemic also, you see, the climate climate question. We can have development at the same time as not polluting the planet. We can build houses differently. We can provide energy differently. Um, there are some tentative steps to. This, the idea, for instance, of putting solar panels on all the roofs and then connecting it to a national network, electric cars. I mean, there are ways of maintaining a good standard of living and not polluting the planet. But you can't have that with capitalism. You cannot have that when they say, well, who's going to pay for, the, um, for all the insulation? Who's going to pay for the, um, for the solar panels? Who's going to pay for this new network? Well, of course, the capitalists always want somebody else to pay, and they don't want uh, they don't they don't they don't want to um, cough up the money. On the question of the vaccine, we have vaccine nationalism now. Countries trying to grab the vaccines for themselves. Trump tried to do it. You remember, if you remember, he tried to get all the vaccines for uh, for America. Um, but you see, you can't. This is, again, you can't solve this on a national basis. Now, Britain is racing ahead, and they're proud of the fact that they've got, uh, you know, 20% of the population has been vaccinated. Way. <laughs> yes, I'm waiting for mine as well, because, uh, you know, I'm of a certain age. I'm within that category that um, um, is in danger of this. But we have the Kent variant. The Kent variant looks like it's, re it's ready to invade the whole of Europe and beyond. Something to be proud of, I suppose. Um, but you see, let's look at Africa. The African Union has declared that their plan is to vaccinate everybody in Africa over the next two or three, not months, years. So this means that the virus spreads around Africa. The, long, the more it spreads, the more widespread it is, and the longer it's out there, the higher the chances of mutations. And we already have the Kent variant, we have the South African variant and many others. The South African variant, they're very worried, could be quite resistant to the, uh, to the vaccine. So you, can, you could theoretically cut it right down in Britain 
it'll come back from somewhere else. It is a global problem. And to quote one South African doctor I heard, he said, we're not going to be secure until we're all secure. That means cooperation, but it's precisely the opposite of what capitalism is capable of. Capitalism is incapable of international cooperation. The essence of capitalism is actually the nation state and defending national capitalist classes, one against the other, one in competition. Um, so um, the, um, it's the system that's at fault. Um, now, what's been happening in the recent period is at the beginning of this crisis, there was a sense of national unity. We're all in this together. We've got to fight together. We've got to go into lockdown together. We've all got to make an effort. But as time has gone by, it's seeped into the consciousness of people that, that we're not in the same boat, actually. Some of us are in a boat that's leaking uh, and sinking. There's others who've got a much better boat out there, um, which is keeping them afloat. Um, the rich have actually become richer during the pandemic by billions. Amazon, for example, has made huge amounts of money while millions of people have been pushed into poverty. This is radicalizing people. It's radicalizing young people. What we should remember is that the, um, what's radicalizing people is the realization that we're not all in, uh, in this together at all. Um, there are the rich and there are the mass of the workers. Now, one of the problems that the capitalist class has got globally is that in spite of uh, the trendy postmodernist ideas out there on the campuses, which a lot of you no doubt will be acquainted with, the idea that you can change the world by changing how you describe things, you just change its name and therefore you change its essence. One of the things they like to say is that the working class doesn't exist. Now, if you have a subjective idealist point of view, all you have to say is magically, the working class no longer exists. And it disappears, you see, because um, that's how postmodernism works. But unfortunately, of course, that's not how the real world works. Postmodernism is gobbledygook, gobbledygook nonsense, um, which is a reflection of the sickness of the system and the kind of ideology that the bourgeois needs. The working class exists. And not only does it exist, it is... Uh, and it has never been so powerful, objectively speaking. The workforce on the planet is over 3 billion now. Um, there are over 400 million metal workers, that is industrial engineering workers. That have never seen such a powerful force developed. Um, that also explains the behavior of governments. At the moment, they are spending huge amounts of money you, you're young, but I'm sure you, you remember that it wasn't so long ago that the mantra was austerity, austerity, austerity. We must cut, cut. Now it's spend, spend, spend. Yeah, even the IMF says we've got to keep uh, the purse strings loosened up. We've got to pay. We've got to, we've got to. Why, why, why are they doing that? Because they understand 
how powerful the working class, in spite of declaring it doesn't exist, they know it exists. Capitalists know where their profits come from. It comes from the process of production. If you don't have workers producing, uh, you don't have profits. But they also understand that the workers can move, they can mobilize, and they've seen those mobilizations. They've seen movements like the Black Lives Matter or the big strikes in India. They're not, they're not blind uh, to what is happening. And they realize that if the working class rises up and mobilizes, they are in a very difficult position, objectively speaking, in terms of balance of forces between the classes. We've never seen such a situation in the history of capitalism. That's why they're spending the money. They're literally paying people to survive the furlough system, etc. Of course, within limits, we're not exactly, we're not living in a paradise, but they are desperate to allow people to survive through this they're what they're thinking is spend the money keep things trundling along get out of this pandemic once we're out of it we get the economy back on its feet then then they will turn back towards who's going to pay for the debt and you know who they're going to ask to pay for the debt it's the working class it's the workers the farmers the youth, um, the youth that have no future. Um, this, this, this is the situation we're in. And the level of debt is unprecedented. Again, there's an element of um, fantasy here in the heads of, the, of, the, of, of some of these capitalists. They, they literally think they can just keep spending their way out of this crisis, printing money, pumping billions and billions in every year. Um, well, they're soon they're going to find out that that's not possible. It's not possible to continue doing that. Look, global debt last year, in the first quarter of last year, reached 331% of GDP. That means the debt is over three times the value of what the whole world produces. And in just in that one quarter, that, that debt had grown 10%, reaching a record then of $258 trillion. This is unprecedented. It's also happening in China. China, the, the one major power that actually managed to maintain a minimum of growth last year. If you count all sectors, private, corporate, state, etc., um, debt reached 335 of GDP. Um, a massive leap in debt. And, and I, I haven't got time to go through all the figures. All across Europe, we see this massive increase um, in debt. Um, and it's interesting how the Financial Times sees this. I've quoted this before, but um, it's from May of last year. It's an editorial statement. This is the Financial Times, the organ of the British ruling class, basically. It starts off with a paragraph that says, short of a communist revolution, it is hard to imagine how governments could have intervened in private markets as quickly and deeply as in the past two months of lockdown. Um, overnight, millions of private sector employees have been getting their paychecks from public budgets and central banks. And it goes on and on to explain this. Um, it's interesting that they start off by short of a communist revolution. They seem to be referring to the word revolution a lot more often these days. 
the other day, uh, the me you know, the social media was full of the, the posts of articles from the Telegraph, Financial Times, which showed that the serious strategists of capital are very, very concerned at the situation that we are facing. They're talking about um, uh, revol they're talking about revolution as a consequence of the situation that we are living in. So it's not it's not a pipe dream and it's not an invention of the Marxists. What's happening is that a consciousness is leaping forward and masses of people are beginning to draw conclusions that the Marxists drew a long time ago. And the difference between the, Mar the Mar Marxists and, and the average youth or worker that's sort of waking up to reality is Marxists study history. They study the past. Not because we've, you know, we like to sit in rooms reading books uh, for the sake of it, um, although history is very interesting even for the sake of it, but it's to learn from it. Um, you know, I, I, I spoke um, last week, I spoke at our Indian Marxist school on Bolshevism. And um, looking back, there was a moment in which the Russian Marxists could be counted. The total number were three. Plokhanov had a tiny, tiny little group in exile. And the people that dominated the movement in Russia were the Narodniks, the populists. And they used to accuse the Marxists. Of, oh, you, you just read books. You just study sociology. You just study theory. We don't, we, we, we don't need theory. We need action with the practical people. A few decades later, who carried out the revolution in Russia? Was it the practical Narodniks or was it the book studying theoreticians? Well, history shows you who did it. The theory is necessary to understand how we should act in practice. Marxist theory has allowed us over the years to develop a perspective and an understanding. Marxist economics has allowed us to understand where this system was eventually going to end up. Even when it was at its height of its boom, we understood that the contradictions were developing within it, which would bring about massive changes in society, social convulsions and, and revolution. And when we did that in the past, there were periods in which we were um, in effect going against the stream. We were struggling to defend these ideas. But we knew that we were right, not because we've got a crystal ball, not because we're stubborn or whatever. It's because history shows that capitalism goes through ups and downs. It can go through periods of expansion. And in those if and if that is a period of a long period, um, it can have an impact on consciousness. It basically leads people to think, well, in the system, yeah, there's corruption, there's mafia, there's this, there's that. But it, it gives us a reasonable life. It gives us a job and a wage. And we've got the NHS and we've got free education. We did have free education um, years ago. And um, people withdraw into their you know, personal lives. They don't think too much of politics in situations like that. But the system comes knocking at your door eventually. It enters into crisis. I, I, I'm not going to give you an economic lesson on the, on the uh, you know, Marxist economics. You can do that in your study circles, in your reading groups, you know, whatever. But um, 
what, what we have to highlight is that the understanding of the Marxist is beginning to connect with the growing consciousness of the masses. That's what's happening. That explains why far more people are looking for these ideas today, today. Now, what's interesting about the political situation as a whole is the ruling class uh, is basically losing control of its own political system. Trump is an example. Look at what they're doing in America. If you watch BBC News Channel, it's broadcasting the, the, the speeches in uh, American Congress uh, discussing the impeachment of, um, of, um, of Trump. They are desperately trying to make, it, make sure that he never gets back into power. The problem is uh, he did get 74 million votes. Uh, he lost, but that phenomenon has not gone away. In Britain, the position of the establishment of the ruling class was to stay in the European Union. But look at what we have. We're not in the European Union. Um, you have a Boris Johnson who comes to the top of the Tory party. He was not the preferred candidate of the ruling class. Um, in Brazil, the same with Bolsonaro. What's happening is the polarization to the left and right is also impacting on the established political parties. The ruling class must be tearing their hair out because their traditional establishment figures have lost authority in the eyes of the mass of the population, even within the milieu of the Tory party, the serious Tories, the, the ones who represent finance capital and big industrial capital, don't have a majority in the ranks of the Tory party. You, you have this, uh, these crazies you know, in, in the ranks of the Tories who've, ta who've taken over. Trump is the same, Bolsonaro, Modi. It's an international phenomenon. Um, it also has an effect on the Labour Party in Britain, which surged to the left. And now the, they're making sure they take back control in a brutal way, discarding any, any, any niceties such as, you know, genuine democratically taking decisions. You just steamroll through and take back, try and take back control. Because the, the bourgeois need to control Labour and the Tory party because it's the basis of the system that's governed the country for over a century. But you can see how it's cracking and breaking up, and it's breaking up under the pressure of, of the situation. Now, um, I haven't got time to develop many of the other points I would have liked to because of the, you know, because we've only got 40 minutes here. Um, there are plenty of articles on our website that um, go into this uh, analysis far more deeply um, than here. But um, I think I've given you an idea or a taste of why, what is happening and why. The question is, what is the answer? The answer is, we need a world economy which is planned, which is coordinated, um, which uh, is run according to the priorities of human beings and not profit. Um, this means an economic system which cannot be run by individual owners of the means of production who use those means for their own personal profit, because that means their criteria will be maximized profit. If that means polluting, you pollute. If that means destroying the Amazon forest for a short-term gain, you do it. 
creating, of course, long-term pain and damage to the whole of humanity. This is the way the capitalist system works. It has lived well beyond, it, it's gone well beyond, let's say, its historical role. Well, well beyond it. And now it's eating away at itself. And it's, it, it's, it, it's, like, it's like the outer shell is there, but inside it's rotting. Um, when that happens, it needs to be removed. History has reached a point where humanity, in order to move forward in a progressive manner, a genuinely progressive manner, healthy, let's say, manner, it's the system we live in that has to be changed. Just like feudalism reached a point where, in order for society to go forward, that system had to be overthrown, and it was overthrown. The bourgeois don't like to be reminded of the fact that they used violence to overthrow the feudal system in France, for example, or in Britain. You'd think that it was all nice pacifism and uh, everybody talking nicely across the table. The time has come for another class to come forward and say, this system has reached its end. We must take over. And this time that we is not another ruling class, a minority, but it's the overwhelming majority. It's the working people the workers of the world, um, these billions of working people, they're the ones who should now take over, take over the means of production, change the way we produce and what we produce to the benefit of the whole of humanity. And it is possible, but it needs the system to be removed. For that system to be removed, it also requires a party a party with clear ideas, a clear understanding, and that can take into the movement the program that is necessary. And the program is not too difficult to understand. It's the nationalization of the commanding heights of the economy. These big industrial corporations, which have been created by capitalism, need to be taken over and integrated into a planned system but under the democratic control of the workers themselves. The, the people who run these companies must be elected at every level. And another thing, they mustn't be paid huge wages. Today we have trade union leaders who get wages and you think they were capitalists the way they live. Uh, there's a reason for that. The system promotes that because it also promotes a consciousness. If you earn a 200,000 pounds a year, your consciousness is gonna be slightly different from somebody who earns £20,000 a year. Therefore, um, you also need to introduce the idea that people who get elected to positions mustn't earn more than the workers they represent. That's one of the important elements against the development of bureaucracy. If we take these ideas boldly into the working class and the youth, we will get a big echo. We will find many people who will say, you, you know, you're right. Uh, and we can build with that, build up a force. The Marxist Student Federation is doing that within the student milieu, taking these ideas amongst students in a very successful way, uh, finding a big echo, finding a lot of young people who want to discuss. Not everybody's going to agree with everything we say tomorrow. There's probably people listening here. I don't know, there might be, they might think I'm crazy. I'm a crazy Marxist. Here's this lunatic who's appeared from some strange planet. Um, I don't know, I don't think there's that many that think that, but if you do, I don't mind. I'm used to it, I've had it for decades. 
In the past, it was even more the case. They would look at you as if you were some strange beast. Not so much these days. These days when you talk, people think, uh, he seems to be making sense. Oh, that's that. I mean, I thought of that. That's what's happening. On that basis, we can build a strong Marxist student federation, educate the members in a Marxist understanding and perspective, and take these ideas into the working class, into the trade unions, and fight for them, and fight for the establishment of a Marxist tendency embedded within the working class, moving with the workers every step and indicating what the final answer is. That's the task we have in Britain and globally. It can't be done in one country. It has to be done on a global scale. And that's why we're connected as an international Marxist tendency. I'll end here because give people time to ask questions and come in. Um, this is just a brief introduction um, to world analysis, uh, uh, which would require these days, not hours, it would require several days actually to give a full analysis of what's actually happening, you know, in China, in Africa, in Latin America, uh, in Europe, etc. But I hope I've given you at least a taste of what we think, what our analysis is, and the tasks before us. Question is, you need to get stuck in and help us. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.